This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes and how they relate to the work of philanthropy and civil society. Uh, I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. Um, This episode, uh, for those of you who've been enjoying uh, the recent interview episode, sadly is not one of those. This is one where I'm going to be sitting and talking at you for a bit, but I will hopefully do my best to make it still extremely interesting for all of you. Um, so this week we are looking at a very timely um, uh, issue, which is much in the news at the moment, and that is artificial intelligence. And we'll be looking at how that relates to philanthropy and the work of civil society. Um, now, this is uh, an area that I've been doing some work on for the last 18 months or two years. Um, and actually, we've got um, quite a big discussion paper out about it just in a couple of weeks. Um, so keep your eyes peeled for that, because quite a lot of the stuff I'll be talking about on the podcast today is explored in more depth there. And I will um, put some details about where you can get hold of that if you're interested in the show notes um, at the end of the program. Okay. So in the first section, I just want to kick off by giving a bit of background about um, kind of, well, basically what we're talking about when we talk about artificial intelligence and also why people are talking about it so much at the moment. And then a sense of why I think it is of relevance to the charity sector. Um, and then I'll go on and kind of look at various different dimensions uh, around what I think that that impact will be. So in terms of what it is that we're talking about, I think it's pretty important up front to say that the term artificial artificial intelligence can be a little bit misleading. I think it conjures up images in people's minds of, um, you know, androids or robots of human level intelligence and the kind of ethical quandaries in science fiction films and and, uh, books like Blade Runner and and others by Centennial Man. Uh, But actually, we're not really talking about that at the moment. That is generalised artificial intelligence. And we're actually nowhere nearer generalised artificial intelligence, if you listen to some experts, than we were about 50 years ago. What we have made huge strides in is domain-specific or specialised artificial intelligence, which is where algorithmic systems, um, so systems underpinned by processes, decision processes that kind of uh, establish a a mode of, of taking information and producing outputs, have got much better and incredible in some circumstances um, at doing specific defined tasks. So that might be things like you know that seem trivial, like playing games like chess or Go, um, which are actually you know very good tests of uh, the level of intelligence of, a, of an automatic or automated system. Or it might be in more real world contexts, things like image recognition, facial recognition, or speaking in natural language conversations, which actually have traditionally proved some of the the, the most difficult things for um, uh, computer-based systems to do um, in a kind of compelling and convincing way. And we'll say a little bit more in a second about why that was. And the reason that 
there's been such a, a step change in the last few years and why there's so much interest in the newspapers and kind of in government and the tech sector and, and all kinds of other areas in artificial intelligence, I think boils down to a couple of factors and I'll kind of highlight four of them maybe. So one is that there's been a, a fundamental change in the way that the algorithms that they use for these systems um, work. Without going into too much detail, the big development was the shift towards, uh, I think, something called machine learning and particularly towards a model um, of a thing called um, a deep neural network or deep learning. Traditionally, artificial intelligence was based on the idea that you would essentially have to program the system up front to do all of the things that you wanted to be able to do. So you would actually have to understand how to do those things yourselves. And, and this proved extremely difficult for some things particularly that humans find it very easy to do but we're absolutely terrible at explaining how we do them and that's things like facial recognition image recognition or speaking in natural language and it was a huge limiting factor because if you have to be able to program in all the rules up front then uh, it makes it very difficult if you don't know what those rules are to make systems that can convincingly do those things. And the big shift was towards machine learning. So this is the idea that you create algorithms that are essentially able to learn. So what they can do is they can run through iterations of millions and millions of iterations of kind of trial and error and refine themselves so they actually can go back and, and tweak their own algorithm as they go along to make themselves better and better at doing a particular thing. So they essentially learn as a, as a child would. And this enables a huge degree of more flexibility and also kind of opens up loads of possibilities, as we'll see in a moment. But the second factor, I think, you know, that, that plays into that. So machine learning is, is great and extremely powerful tool, but it requires vast, vast quantities of data for these things to learn on. On. And that was also traditionally a limiting factor. The thing that's changed there is that there's been an enormous explosion in the amount of data available, um, you know, because we all live our lives online and we're sort of creating images and audio and our online interactions create data. People are starting to wear wearables like Fitbits and all these sorts of things. And this data explosion is providing a very, very rich resource on which to train some of these machine learning algorithms. The third factor which follows from that is, well, you've you've got the principle of machine learning and you've got the kind of the, the data for it to, to work on, but those are almost software solutions. Actually, you still need some hardware to run them on. Um, and traditionally, this was a limiting factor because, you know, the machines just weren't fast enough to cope. Funnily, when sort of strange historical quirk, the development of graphical processor units to enable people to play computer games uh, more enjoyably and effectively, it has played a big part here because those turn out to be precisely the sorts of units that you need for the kind of processing that makes machine learning work. So actually, they, the development of that for the gaming industry has played a big role in, in the acceleration of artificial intelligence. And then the fourth factor um, is just given all of these pieces have fallen into place, the investment has followed and there's money flooding into the space and that has enabled the speed of development to, to accelerate. So having given that kind of little potted overview of why AI is all of a sudden moving ahead at such a pace, I just want to spell out the three ways in which I think it is of relevance to, to charities and the work of civil society because I think it's easy sometimes to assume that all we're talking about is 
directly putting ai to use for um for good and for kind of to deliver charitable missions and that is one of the ways in which it's relevant but i sometimes worry that if that's uh, seen as the only way in which it's relevant it seems like quite an exclusive club or something that a lot of organizations don't feel is relevant for for them at this moment in time because they don't have the skills or resources to do anything about it but I think as well as that idea that you can put AI or any other technology to use in terms of delivering your social or environmental mission, there are two other ways in which it impacts on civil society organizations that are perhaps more compelling for a wider range of organizations. One is that a technology like AI is going to be so ubiquitous uh, in the near future and, and probably have such kind of wide impacts across industry and society that it's going to change the operating environment for organizations from all sectors, including civil society. So I don't think there's necessarily a choice about whether or not to pay any attention because it will be forced upon organizations to adapt to these new contexts. And then the other reason is that even if you as an organization are quite sanguine about that and don't feel like you need to do anything, the impact of a technology like AI is going to be felt widely across society and it's going to hit the very people and communities that you as an organisation are supposed to be serving through your work. And if it fundamentally changes the nature of the needs of those people and communities and you as an organisation have not have failed to adapt or to understand the nature of that change you'll no longer be meeting the needs of the people you're supposed to be serving in the near future. So I think for all of those reasons, it's really time now for all of us in civil society to pay attention to, to what's going on in artificial intelligence. So with that rather overlong introduction, um, and just in the next couple of sections, going to uh, go on and talk about various ways, um, in, you go into a bit of detail about these three ways in which I think artificial intelligence can have an impact. So in the next section, I'm going to have a bit of a look at the kind of AI for good movement, and also some of those ideas around the wider operating environment. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so in, in this section, I'm just going to try and go in, in fairly brief detail into um, the ways in which artificial intelligence is currently being put to use to achieve social and environmental good and how that might develop in the future. And also what some of the wider um, impact on, uh, on the kind of environment in which civil society organizations operate might be. So in terms of AI for good, I mean, it's it's early days, um, as with any of these technologies, although actually compared to another technology that you might take um, with kind of similar level of development like blockchain, something else we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast, um, there's probably more actual meaningful use cases on the ground with, with AI when it comes to social good than there are with some of those other technologies. It's still a handful, but they're definitely out there. There's a couple of areas in which we are seeing that in particular. The first one is around medical research, where it's being used largely to uh, apply machine learning techniques and algorithms to try and find new trends and uh, kind of patterns in very, very large sets of medical data. Um, so, for instance, Cancer Research UK um, has a challenge prize out looking at how uh, you might be able to use um, medical records to find better ways of kind of identifying uh, cancer early on and addressing it. And 
And actually, as I record this, there was a, an announcement today um, that Theresa May, the Prime Minister, is going to be giving a speech later on today talking about the use of AI um, in medicine, particularly around cancer research. So it's something that very much is kind of at the forefront of political awareness at the moment, the, the potential here. Um, there's also interesting examples, one recently uh, that was announced, Parkinson's UK um, it has a project um, that it's launching with Benevolent AI, which is an AI startup, where they are going to be harnessing um, signals from people's mobile phones on kept on their person that measure sort of tiny micro movements of the body. And patterns in those they think might be able to be determined that can provide much better early warning signs of the onset of Parkinson's disease. So there's some really fascinating examples out there. It's worth saying one possible kind of concern or just you know a bit of grit in the oyster here is that currently a lot of what is going on around AEI for good, there are some partnerships with charities and civil society organizations, but a lot of it is being driven by the tech sector itself. Now, in some ways, that's very good um, because it's great that they see that these things need to have a social purpose and that they're excited about those use cases. But I, I would be more comfortable, I think, if there was more of a sense of the kind of traditional charitable sector and wider civil society being engaged, just because I, I think that we're more likely to get the best use cases and also avoid some of the ethical pitfalls if those organizations are there kind of acting as a critical friend and trying to help them identify how these technologies could be used. So, you know, I'm not being particularly negative, but I, I do think it's we need to develop much more um, close links between civil society and the tech sector as this stuff develops. The other big way, I think, in which we're seeing AI being put to use for, for social good in, in some ways at the moment is um, much more visible, really, to, to most of us. And that's through the use of chatbots or conversational assistants and kind of harnessing those. So chatbots are usually the sort of text-based interfaces that you get on particular websites where a little box will pop up and it pretends to be a person often you answer it can answer some questions and, and kind of direct you to information you need and conversational ai um i'm thinking of in the context of voice operated assistants like uh, Apple Siri or Amazon's Alexa, Google Home, these sorts of things. And we're all kind of increasingly aware of those, and many of us have them in our homes. Now, these are being put to use in, in a sort of variety of ways. Around chatbots particularly, some charities are starting to use them to provide advice services. So the sort of things you might have had to operate a phone line for in the past... Well, the benefit of being able to use a chatbot, firstly, is that you can do it at a reduced cost, which is you know, a little bit controversial in terms of questions of employment. But putting that aside for one moment, there are additional benefits in terms of the fact that you can make some of these services available um, 24-7, 365 days a year so people can access them when they need them. And, and certainly in terms of kind of acute services when people need help immediately, like uh, mental health interventions, for instance, that can be a, a huge benefit. Around the, the wider use of conversational assistance, um, well, they're being used in a couple of ways. I mean, one obvious one is that they simply make access to the Internet and to other technologies potentially much more accessible for, for certain groups. So people with visual impairments, for instance, being able to use a conversational, uh, conversation-based assistant rather than a screen-based interface could be a huge boon. And even for people who are don't have a particular physical impairment but are just less comfortable with um with technology 
actually conversational interfaces are much closer to our sort of um, natural offline experiences than than using a screen might be so for for groups like older people for instance who don't necessarily have the the experience of using technology they might provide a much easier way of of getting into to some of these services and kind of accessing things that they need and then finally, the another way that we're just about starting to see, and I'll come on to um, in a second in, in a bit more detail, is the use of conversational assistance to enable charitable giving. Now, this is seems like a no-brainer to me, and it's, we're going to see a lot more of it. So people increasingly are able to ask, you know, um, Alexa to do all kinds of things. You know, Alexa, order me a pizza. Alexa, tell me what time my children's uh, Christmas play is. Um, but basically, it's going to start to seem a bit weird, I think, if we're not also able to say, you know, Alexa, what charities can I give to, um, you know, at the moment in response to some story that I've seen or heard or, you know, Alexa kind of, um, what are the best charities operating in this local area? Um, so I think we're going to start to see um, quite a lot more of that. And and that, to my mind, is one of the sort of big changes in the wider operating environment. So I think the, the impact on charitable giving itself, um, we, we've we only started to see that and, and we're going to see a lot more of it in the coming years. I think, you know, one is that these AI um, powered interfaces are going to be used for giving. And since they are underpinned by algorithms, immediately there is a question about, well, what are the algorithms that we're using to determine the advice, essentially, that we are getting uh, in terms of directing our giving? And it strikes me that there are kind of two obvious models one could follow. So the first one is uh, an algorithm that gives you advice on charities you might want based on your previous um, uh, preferences and on what your peer group likes. A bit like the model that um, Facebook employs at the moment to fill up your feed or to an extent you know the model that Amazon uses to recommend things you might want to buy based on what you've purchased before. Now it's fairly easy to my mind to see why that might be problematic i mean immediately it strikes me that that is going to create a huge bias towards already popular causes and already well-known organizations at the expense of less well-known and less popular uh, organizations and causes and that is something that would concern me so i think it needs to be explicitly addressed in the development of any of this technology but then the other way in which I think we could use AI eventually to change the nature of charitable giving is to use it to create a much more, basically an entirely rational allocation of philanthropic resources based on an, an analysis of where the most pressing needs and priorities are at any one time. So by taking data from the public sector and health data and, and kind of data from wearables and all this sort of stuff, analysing it to see where the most uh, pressing issues are at any one time. And then also taking social impact data on uh, charities and civil society and other interventions to work out what's the most effective way of addressing those and then just having a kind of matching process uh, dictated by the algorithm. Now, whenever I raise this possibility, uh, quite a lot of people say, oh, that's both unlikely and extremely depressing. And I don't think you can ever fully take the element of heart out of the equation when it comes to charitable giving. I guess I would agree, and I'm not saying that I necessarily think we should, but I do think that there will be contexts in the future where 
it is impractical to have human oversight of every decision that's being made about where charitable money is going. So we will need a mechanism for determining that. And some form of algorithmic process is likely to be the best solution. And the reason I say that, well, I can two examples, for instance. One, we've already covered. So the growing ubiquity of um, conversational assistance. Well, we've already said that that means you need to somehow determine an algorithmic process to to decide where the, the charitable money is going and one option would be this kind of entirely AI, AI powered philanthropy and then the other one that I think makes it even more likely to take off is that in the future you know a lot of experts think we'll have the development of a fully fledged internet of things so this is the kind of network of smart objects so objects that are embedded with sensors and processors that are able to sense and adapt to their own environment so autonomous vehicles but also you know uh kind of kitchen appliances that are able to um, control their own maintenance needs and this sort of thing and once these are all connected up it's likely that we will start to see the emergence of a machine-to-machine economy in which these these objects are transacting with one another to kind of buy products and services um, within that system, what you're likely to have is a huge volume of very, very low value transactions going backwards and forwards all over the place. And if you want to get some of that to go to charity, which I personally would think would be a good idea, the only feasible way to my mind to do that is to employ some sort of algorithmic process of the kind that I'm describing, which is not to say that it would replace traditional philanthropy in any sense but it might open up an entirely new context in which you could get a philanthropic element that otherwise would prove impossible. And that's why I think it's worth paying attention to. And just in terms of some other ways in which I think we, we need to think about the impact of AI on the wider operating environment, one is around the impact it might have on regulation. So there's a whole area out there of reg tech because regulators needed to have their own tech to go along with fintech. Um, and I think, you know, changes we're already seeing there to the way in which regulation works in things like financial markets. I think we will start to see similar changes um, in terms of the regulation of charities and nonprofits, and particularly the use of algorithmic processes and algorithmic systems to for, firstly for kind of early warning signs of where there might be problems. So the application of machine learning, for instance, to financial data to try and get more preventative regulation and they might even get to a point where they hard code some of the rules governing the system into the system itself so you switch from a model where you set rules and then wait and see if anybody breaks them and then punish them to one where you literally make it impossible uh, from the outset to break those rules in the first place and you know to many people's minds me included that has the potential to descend into a sort of kafkaesque nightmare but it's definitely something that is worth thinking through now because it's starting to happen uh, in some areas the other way in which uh, ai is why is likely to have a very wide impact is just the uh, the way in which automation is going to change the nature of the workplace so you know we all know by this point that um a lot of people say that uh, many of our jobs will be un- under threat from automation and, and AI in the future, including many sort of white collar and knowledge based jobs that were previously thought pretty impervious to this sort of stuff. And there's going to be all sorts of questions, I think, about what that means for the future of the workplace, how we as a society adapt to a, a world you know, in which we kind of all operate in a post work environment. What it means for our sense of purpose, which you know currently is very much tied up often with our 
uh, notion of ourselves as as productive economic units what it will mean if we no longer have that uh, we will all be searching for a new sense of purpose and i think civil society will have a huge role to play in kind of managing that transition and answering some of those questions so i think there's all kinds of ways in which you know civil society and the organizations within it really do need to start paying attention to what's happening uh, in terms of ai right now and that leads us on to the final section which is to think um, a bit more in a dystopian way about what some of the kind of actively bad implications of ai might be and what role civil society could play in addressing them so stay tuned for that Okay, so we're back for the final section in which we're just going to have a bit of a think about some of the potential challenges that AI might pose that civil society and civil society organizations could play a role in advocating against now or also addressing in the future if they do actually happen. So I guess up front it's worth saying that there quite there's there's one category of things that we could be talking about which is the kind of Uh, intended malicious use of artificial intelligence and then there's another which is probably a bigger category of more relevance which is all of the sort of long tail of unintended negative consequences that come about uh, by the application of the the technology without uh, due care and and attention or forethought up front in terms of that kind of uh, intended malicious use I think what we're talking about there often is things like the development of autonomous weaponry, which there is you know a lot of concern about in in many areas at the moment, and lots of countries across the world are, are extremely uh, worried about this. And I guess a lot of civil society organisations have often played a very strong role in kind of um, disarmament movements and and kind of campaigns for peace building. So if there's going to be a fundamental change in the nature of warfare that is going to uh, potentially put far more lives at risk then this is something that you know those organizations need to be kind of adapting and, and paying attention to but coming on to the um the kind of unintended negative consequences of ai well i think we're starting to get a sense of what some of these might be and i think they're all areas in which civil society has a huge role to play so you know one well publicized uh, unintended consequence is around algorithmic bias so this is the idea that the the algorithms and the algorithmic processes that underpin AI are not themselves biased in any way, but if you put them to work or let them learn on data sets that contain historic bias for factors like race or gender, they get extremely racist and very sexist very quickly, um, and they actually get much you know they they strengthen and entrench those biases over time, and. You know, we're sort of aware of this problem now. And I think, you know, there's going to be a role for civil society, firstly, to get itself up to speed with some of these challenges and to speak out about how it is starting to affect the people and communities that it serves. So, for instance, here in the UK, a few it's been recently reported that a few police forces have started to use predictive policing algorithms to try and take data on you know, kind of the, the local area and determine which people or communities are at most uh, most risk of committing crimes or are most likely to commit crimes. And there are already huge concerns about the ways in which these algorithms start to show you know, racial and demographic bias. And civil society organizations, I think, really need to speak up about some of these challenges. And also, I think, you know, as these things come to pass, as well as speaking up, civil society organizations, I think, need to be brought into the tent by the tech industry 
to help with the design and oversight of these algorithms so that as we we go along they can help to ensure that we are making them as kind of fair and accountable uh, and transparent as possible another area i think and kind of well publicized one in which ai is having a, a negative effect is around the the impact of fake news and propaganda so we have sort of seen in in recent um, elections, so the election of Donald Trump in the U.S., and we're starting to see um, around the uh, the Brexit vote here in the U.K. Concerns that people have deliberately used big data and AI to kind of target propaganda and misinformation and fake news to particular groups and individuals to try and influence their views and and how they vote. Um, and some of that obviously is tied up with kind of foreign actors and, and sort of Russian interference coming into to various uh, elections. And, you know, this problem is going to get significantly worse, I think, in the coming years. So we're already seeing um, the arrival of things like deep fakes, which is um, AI generated video uh, material that is indistinguishable from real recorded video. And it's not hard to see the impact this might have on uh, on this problem. So in the future, if somebody, you know, a fake news outlet is able to claim that a politician or, or public figure said something controversial, um, well, they will simply be able to come up with video evidence that, that seems to prove that. Um, and this is going to be a big problem for civil society organizations, I think, because so many of them rely on the notion of objective facts and evidence and the value of expertise when it comes to making their case and advocating for, for their social mission. So anything that kind of erodes the people's trust in, in those concepts is going to be a big challenge. But then on the flip side, I think civil society organizations can play a positive role in addressing some of these challenges by supporting uh, initiatives to kind of strengthen things like local journalism, quality local journalism, or new kind of um, tech approaches to verification of you know video and audio material that are starting to be developed. And I think, you know, there's a big role for civil society to play there. And then the other thing I'll just I'll say there's two more things I think that are really interesting here. One is around the idea, building on what we were saying there about uh, fake news, of, of filter bubbles. So we have already heard in the context of social media that there's been a you know big challenge in the way that people are able to increasingly lock themselves into echo chambers and you know, filter bubbles where their experience and the interactions they're having um, are all uh, kind of just directed within a closed group and they hear the same views and opinions coming back at them and over time that strengthens their own views and opinions and this is kind of playing a big part in corroding public discourse um, and I think this is going to get a lot worse in the future um, again going back to what we were saying about conversational AI if people are increasingly having their experience mediated by interfaces that are underpinned by algorithms and they don't even necessarily know that then they are going to have that experience filtered ever more and more and they're going to get locked in much stronger filter bubbles that it will be very hard to break out of. Now, I think this is a problem for civil society and charities, partly in terms of things like their fundraising efforts. It will be that much more difficult to kind of break into those uh, filter bubbles and make people aware of the, the work that they're doing and the challenges that they're trying to address. But also, I think it might make people um, more hard-hearted because it's often going to be harder, I think, to get empathy from people for people in different social groups or different countries or different walks of life if they are being told things about those people and groups 
um, within their filter bubble that are kind of hardening their their attitudes to them. Um, And I think that's going to be a big challenge in the future. And then the final interesting way, I think, in which um, AI is going to present some new problems for philanthropy and civil society is around the impact that it has on our own behavior and development as human beings. So we've already started to see um, concerns being expressed, for instance, about the way that conversational assistants are having a negative impact on children's development. So essentially it makes them extremely rude and bossy because children are interacting with uh, a conversational AI as their learning language that essentially is very servile. And then they aren't getting the kind of cues and guidance that they need to develop social norms from those conversational AIs so that when they come to speak with other human beings, they're also very rude and bossy. And similarly, there are things like the phenomenon of robot abuse. So children, it's found often if they're left alone with with robots and nobody is overseeing it, they will descend to a point where they will just start to hit and kick and, and abuse the robot. And you, over time, this this sort of thing will come to have quite a, a negative effect potentially on the way in which um, we as humans are able to interact with one another and kind of whether it sort of stymies our own development. So, you know, given that a lot of civil society organisations seek often there to kind of pick up the pieces when um, social structures break down, kind of when you know families run into trouble if the nature of those sorts of chain, chain uh, problems is going to change uh, as a result of the impact of technology, then I think that is something that these organisations need to start paying attention to now as well. Okay, so I think that is a rather long, actually, for, for this podcast, um, overview of some of the ways in which I think uh, AI is uh, going to have an impact on the world of civil society, both for good, hopefully, uh, and potentially for ill. Although, you know, the the positive note there on the end is I think we have an opportunity now for civil society to play a very strong role in making sure that we minimise some of those negative consequences and accentuate some of the positive ones. Um, But I do think these are conversations that we really need to start having now and make sure that civil society has a voice in all of these debates at the highest possible level. Um, as I say, we've got a paper coming about out about this uh, very soon, so check that out if you want more on, on this kind of thing. Um, other than that, uh, just as housekeeping, it remains to say um, if you want to check out any of our wider work, uh, look at the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Um, if you've got any ideas for things we could be doing on the podcast, um, topics we could cover, people we could interview, drop me a line at givingthought@cafonline.org. And other than that, it just remains to say uh, like, subscribe and tell all your friends about it. OK, I'll see you next time. Bye.